this won't be one of those episodes where we're doing like news of the week in pop culture. So even though your wife told you to prepare for this taping by watching the WAP video, you don't have to do that. But we could talk I mean, about I did watch it though. The just so you, I mean, I, I am prepared. I just did like extra. That is McKay but, yeah, Coppins. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic. And he is here on the show this episode to talk about politics, not so much Cardi B. You're listening to It's Been a Minute. I'm Sam Sanders. And, well, folks, we are officially in it. There's a big election coming up very soon. Joe Biden just picked Kamala Harris to be his running mate. There's a Democratic convention and a Republican convention this month. And before you know it, in less than three months, it'll be an election day or election week or election month, depending on how this whole voting while in a pandemic thing goes. So we're going to talk today about Donald Trump and Joe Biden, not just them, but their strategies for winning the White House. This episode will examine with two of the best political reporters around how Trump and Biden have built up their bases, who exactly their bases are and what these coalitions tell us about November. We will start with Donald Trump and his voters. McKay Coppins covered Trump's campaign in 2016 and 2020. He's been following the Republican Party for a long time. He actually wrote a book in 2015 all about the party's quest to take back the White House. It's called The Wilderness. So clearly, McKay is the guy to go to for answers about the GOP right now. And my biggest questions for McKay were about Donald Trump's base. How is Trump thinking about that base? And how do his messages resonate with them and beyond them? Trump really hasn't come up with any messages that resonate outside of his base. And that's sort of by design. The, the Trump campaign is thinking about this election as a base election, and w which basically means that they don't think that they either can or need to win over a bunch of swing voters. Basically, if you talk to Republican strategists and people in the Trump campaign, they will say everybody has an opinion on Donald Trump already, right? There's not a lot of people who yeah. are undecided about Donald Trump at this stage. Yeah. I want to talk more about that base. You know, there have been, I mean, there's been, gosh, oodles of coverage about this so-called Trump base for years now. And I think they've taken this outsized role in our national political imagination. Mm -hmm. But from 2016 to now, how is that Trump base changed, shifted, become something different, or has it? I think that it probably hasn't changed that much aside from shrinking a little bit, right? Um, How much is a little bit? Well, we a, a fair amount. I, I think that, you know, the difference between a base and all the people who vote for you in a given election is that there, there's always a certain segment of people who vote for a president uh, or, or any candidate because they don't like the other candidate or they have, you know, a single issue that they care about, but they don't like the the candidate all the time. And maybe they don't like the WrestleMania per, per persona, but they mm -hmm. like the judges that he's appointing and they like the tax cuts or whatever. You know, that's, it's kind of, that, yeah. there are voters like that. Um, what you've seen in, in the last few years, and this was born out in 2018, is that some of those kind of suburban Republican light voters, you know, maybe the Mitt Romney voters, uh, maybe the kind of independents who lean right, have drifted into the Democratic Party. Wh whether he can win 
with this kind of shrunken base and without winning, <laughs> uh, making appeals to the broader country um, is an open question. But you can tell that Trump and his campaign strategists are nervous about it because a lot of the past couple months of messaging seems like it's tailored to those affluent white suburban college educated voters. Well, he he has those tweets where he just says he'll he'll write out the words suburban housewives, and he's <laughs> on this tear tweeting about how he's gonna protect like wealthy suburbs from low income housing. Um, right. Are those tweets for those voters? And is there any indication that that will work? Those tweets are partly for those voters, and I would say also partly for the most hardcore Trump voters. Because, look, the the racial politics embedded there are pretty obvious, right? Like, he's talking about protecting predominantly white suburbs from black and brown people moving in, more or less. Yeah. I want to talk about something that has been lauded within Trump's political apparatus, and that is he and his team's ability to really, really, really do a good job at reaching their base online, and particularly through social media. Um, Mm. You wrote this big piece looking at their online effort, which is robust and strong and sometimes implements tactics from dictators' playbooks. But, you know, they're really good at Facebook, and they're really good at the mis- and disinformation. What is the status of that apparatus now compared to 2016? And is it working as well now as it did then? It's a lot more robust in a lot of ways than it was in 2016. Um, you know, okay. the, they, uh, in part because, look, the, the Trump re-election campaign basically started, uh, you know, the day after he was inaugurated, right? Like, mm-hmm. they immediately formed a new campaign, uh, started hiring people, started raising money, started collecting data to refine their micro-targeted advertising. Um, and so... In a lot of ways, that apparatus is much more robust, but also it's kind of more, for lack of a better word, shameless, you know? In 20- Give me an example of the shamelessness. <laughs> um, okay, well, in 2016, the Trump mm-hmm. campaign basically was like throwing together their digital messaging strategy on the fly. The the guy who was running it was this guy, Brad Parscale, who had no political experience. Yeah. Uh, he was basically running the digital campaign from his personal laptop. But, you know, they, they were willing to experiment with a lot of things. And one of the things they did in 2016 was uh, they, they ran ads that said... I want to get the wording right, but something like Hillary Clinton believes African-Americans are super predators. And I remember they, that. Yeah. So they micro and, and, you know, that's based on something that Hillary Clinton said, but definitely was not exactly what she said. <laughs> anyway, the Trump campaign kind of reduced it to this message and then micro targeted it to black voters in Florida who they thought they could kind of convince just to stay home, basically. Yeah. And so that, that yeah. was kind of a test run of, of a certain strategy that they're already deploying and they're getting ready to deploy much more aggressively and broadly in 2020, which is basically that with the Trump campaign and the associated apparatus, I should say like the, the kind of pro-Trump messaging coalition is not just the campaign. It's super PACs. It's the Republican committees. It's also any number of pro-Trump right-wing media organizations that coordinate closely with the campaign. Um, mm-hmm. but, the, but part of what they're doing now is they're putting out 
uh, messaging and advertising and conspiracy theories and misinformation basically designed to confuse and disorient the electorate, right? I have seen people that I know that I, at least I didn't know them to be like big conspiracy theorists are starting to flirt with the kind of anti-vaccine crowd or, you know, starting mm -hmm. to question if these mask mandates are part of some broader conspiracy to control us. Um, mm -hmm. And, then, you know, and then it kind of starts to intersect with the QAnon stuff. And you can see people in real time day after day, week after week, kind of sliding, oh, really sliding can. down that. Um, and I yeah. think that the president and his like messaging coalition has found places where they think that helps them and has kind of fanned those flames. Yeah. All right, time for a break. Coming up, how the Trump campaign is aiming to bring its base to the polls and keep everybody else at home. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Minute to learn more and get 10% off your first month. Black voters play a crucial role for any Democrat who seeks to win the White House. But some big divides amongst that block and some serious ambivalence could determine who is elected president this November. Listen now on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. So you were talking about this example of the Clinton super predator quote from 2016 that was used by Trump to micro-target black voters to keep them home. What is, a, is there an example of micro-targeting in 2020 to persuade Democrats to also not vote? The, so the answer is yes, but also a lot of the micro-targeting that's happening, we don't know about. So that, uh. just to go back to 2016, we only knew about that example that I brought up because an anonymous Trump campaign official chose to kind of brag about it to a journalist. They bragged and about it, that? Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, Lord. And that, that's the only reason we know about that. But, you know, a, a part of the way that these uh, th this stuff works is that, like, they don't tell you we're feeding you this ad because you have checked these 14 boxes on our like spreadsheet of data that we have on you, right? They, they just feed you an ad that they believe will resonate with you. Um, but but there, as with everything in the Trump campaign, there are still some kind of ham-fisted uh, efforts that we see kind of play out in the light of day. And so, I, you know, one example is that the Trump uh, tweeted a few months ago an ad that uh, used DJ Cool. Let me clear my throat. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this ad, but it, it was targeting black voters to turn them off from Biden, essentially. Uh, <laughs> because because the thing that reaches black voters more than anything else right now in 2020 is yeah, a DJ in 1990 cool song. whatever <laughs> song. Again, these are very ham-fisted, but you can see that like the strategy behind it, right? The the Trump campaign clearly 
it wants to make sure that because this is how a base election works. You have to get your base out, but you also have to make it so that the other side's base is less likely to vote. But there's also kind of practical, physical barriers to voting that have always been an issue, but that are especially an issue when you layer on top of it a you know deadly global pandemic. And that's where yeah. that's where you get the president just recently saying in an interview that he opposes additional funding for the Postal Service because he doesn't want universal mail-in voting to be available to voters. You know, that... And he just that, said it. And he just he, said it. it was, he literally said it. was said a little mind-boggling to hear him say it out loud, especially knowing that he and lots of folks in his uh, orbit have a record of voting yeah. by mail. Yeah, well, right. And, and I mean, we should say that even if Joe Biden has a much broader coalition, ha- is much more, you know, popular and has much more support in the electorate, if it's just really hard and even dangerous to vote, um, you, you know, it, it. <laughs> a lot of people just won't show up. But, it, you know, if yeah. you're Trump and you have a base of supporters who's already prone to kind of be skeptical about the idea that this, you know, that this virus is really serious. Uh, they might be willing to show up in person to vote in greater numbers. Um, and, and if they're also more enthusiastic about the candidate, they, they might brave the virus to vote for him. Uh, so th- that's kind of the, the thinking going on there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, in this big piece you wrote about Trump's online apparatus in February, um, you described how it's really robust getting bigger and more robust, and it was really effective. You wrote in that piece that the RNC and the Trump campaign have reportedly compiled an average of 3,000 data points on every voter in America. Explain how big of a deal that is and how, I guess, unprecedented that, that level of specificity might be. Yeah, when, when I first saw that, I actually, like, thought it was a typo. I read it uh, I read it somewhere <laughs> and I was like that that can't not possibly be accurate, right? Like yeah. 3 3000 data points on almost every voter and I mean that, that that's my I don't have 3000 data points on myself. I, right. I like. mean honestly if if somebody said tell me 3000 things about yourself, <laughs> I, yeah. I think I would top out at like 40, right? Um <laughs> the, so when we say 3000 data points, that's Obvious things like where you live, um, you know, your voting tendencies, your gender, your age. Uh, but it's also, you know, whether you watch the Golf Channel, whether you own a gun, <laughs> the, what, you know, yeah. to some of your search history, so your web browsing history. And wow. basically the, what, what sophisticated political digital strategists can do is they can take that data and mold very specific ads um, out of those data points. So (laughs) Facebook, under pressure and kind of some outrage over the role that they played in in 2016, has added a layer of transparency where they will publish every micro-targeted political ad in an archive, and you can go look through it. And so so if you go search like Facebook ad library, you can look up Donald Trump and you can see wow. the ads that he's that he's posted and it's pretty amazing because 
Well, first of all, I will say it's very hard to wade through. And so it's the idea that transparency will fix all this is probably not really true. I mean, (laughs) as a journalist, like who wrote about this, I spent hours and hours looking through this thing and it still couldn't find everything. But what you'll see is if you go right now, you'll see an ad that the Trump campaign posted, you know, probably this morning. But you'll see like, 50, 75, maybe even hundreds of different versions of the ad. And wow. the wording will be tweaked or the picture might be My different. Goodness. And, and all of it is using the, the data that they have to my, test and micro-target and refine these ads so that they appeal to all these different little groups. Gotcha. Last big question for you. You know, when you talk about the Trump re-election campaign, really trying to get to that base and to a certain extent trying to, to discourage other folks from voting. It seems to stand in direct opposition to the Biden team's campaign operation. They're trying to get this big tent together, which is a mm-hmm. thing that Democrats do. Everyone since Obama has been trying to recreate the Obama coalition, which had all kinds of folks from young voters of color to activists to white suburban moms. This appeal to as many folks as you can strategy. Are we still seeing that from the Biden campaign? That is pretty explicitly what the Biden approach is. But I think that the contrast is a lot sharper, right? Like, you know, I think if you talk to the people on the Mitt Romney campaign in 2012 or George W. Bush's campaign in 2000, 2004, like they would all at least claim that they were trying to reach as many voters as possible. Right. Yeah. Like they yeah. they would all say like, yeah, we want everyone to vote for us. Um, I, that's not quite the case in 2020. Like, sure, I'm, you know, Donald Trump would love it if every American voted for him. I think he, he probably thinks that every American should. But he, <laughs> he also is, like, much more explicit about kind of slicing and dicing the country up into factions that are on Team Trump and factions that are against Team Trump, right? And mm. he his campaign... Uh, strategists all talk about this. Like, they are very candid about the fact that they have a very divisive candidate and they just want to win barely enough votes (laughs) to to put him over the top, Mm. you know? In in just the right places. In just the right places, right. And they don't really expect to do much better than that, and that's okay by them, and that's okay by Trump. But Mm. I think that contrast is, is pretty different in 2020 Uh, than it has been in in at least my lifetime. Thanks again to McKay Coppins. He writes about politics and the Republican Party for The Atlantic. Coming up, how Trump's politics aren't just energizing his own base, but also his opponents. I dig into that with an old friend, That is after the break. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Sometimes food is more than just food. It's an integral part of the community. So this year, Discover is giving $5 million to support Black-owned restaurants, to places like Post Office Pies in Birmingham, Alabama, Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia, and hundreds more Black-owned restaurants in your local community all across the country. Learn how you can show your support at discover.com. 
We're only months away from election day, and every week or even every few hours, there's a new twist that could affect who will win the White House. To keep up with the latest, tune in to the NPR Politics Podcast every day to find out what happened and what it means for the election. We are back. As McKay Coppins was saying before the break, Donald Trump's approach to mobilizing voters could not be more different than Joe Biden's approach. I wanted to dig into that, so I caught up with another friend of the show. Ozma, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm pretty good. I am thinking about the two of us on the trail four years ago. At this point, you would have been just dispatched to Hillary. Oh, yes. I was doing a little Trump stuff. Feels like forever ago, huh? I mean, it also feels like a long time ago because those were the days where we, like, flew on planes, right? And knocked on people's doorsteps. That is Asma Khalid. She's my former NPR Politics podcast co-host and current NPR Politics correspondent. She is traveling around the country right now covering the Biden campaign as much as she can in the midst of a pandemic, of course. She's had to get very creative in order to talk to voters in person. She's been driving to places like Wisconsin and Florida and Michigan, doing interviews outside, wearing her mask. And so I went to grocery store parking lots. But oh of course, goodness. you know, then you're approaching somebody with this like <laughs> That's big so boom weird. mic as they're unloading groceries, <laughs> wearing a face mask themselves. <laughs> so. Asma shared some of her observations on Biden's campaign with me and what she's hearing from his voters, especially about his VP pick, Kamala Harris. There is no way I should in, in any factor, you know, sort of discount the the level of intensity that was placed upon the Biden campaign to specifically choose mm-hmm. a black woman, mm-hmm. whether it was open letters or phone calls to the Biden campaign. Uh, in fact, a phone call that I spoke with some you know black activists who were on the phone with Biden himself directly making this pitch a couple months ago, you know, that they felt that they have been the most loyal folks within the party and yeah. that they deserved to be on the Love top it. of the ticket. Yeah. You know, so when we think about the typical Democratic coalition, it is always kind of a big tent. There are progressives, there are moderates, there are urban voters and suburban voters, black, white and brown voters. Um, It is much different and perhaps more diverse than, you know, Trump's base. But, um, you know, within this Democratic coalition that Biden is trying to get energized. Are there some members of that coalition that are more important than others? I mean, it's hard to say if I think there are members who are more important. What I will say, though, Sam, is I think that the Biden coalition, I think it is extremely unusual and it doesn't really look like the Obama coalition. Explain. You know, there was a Democratic strategist I talked to a couple a couple weeks ago, and he said to me that this coalition is united singularly by one common trait. This is a coalition of voters who want to defeat Donald Trump and they want him out of office. And uh-huh. so as a result, th- this is what the Democratic strategist was telling me. He said, you've got sort of conservative folks who traditionally might have been aligned with the Republican Party who have decided to support Joe Biden. These are people who are, say, um, former supporters of George W. Bush. You've got Black Lives Matter activists. You've got young progressive voters who, frankly, really do not like Joe Biden's agenda, but are on board with him for the sole fact that they just want to end the Trump presidency. And so, yeah, I mean, what I will say, though, a constituency or a demographic that's been getting a lot of attention because they were not part of the Democratic coalition in 2016 are white 
college-educated suburban voters, right? Huh. The thing is, is that Donald Trump actually won the suburbs in 2016. Oh, yeah. um, he is not leading with them now, which is why we keep hearing so many tweets about suburban housewives of America, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, yeah. uh, because he is trying to reach out to them. Uh, but I've attended a few you know, racial pro- justice protests or Juneteenth celebrations after everything that happened with George Floyd. And one of the things I was struck by is that in some of these suburban communities, you have people leading these protests who are young black people, and you have loads of white suburbanites in the crowd. Um, yeah. and, and I talk with like a lot of these white liberals there, and you know some of them will tell me that they, they feel ashamed, for example, that they never fully understood their white privilege before. Some of them, you know, told me, one woman told me that she felt bad that she had raised her daughter to be colorblind, and she now feels like maybe that wasn't the right way to have raised her daughter. And so there's kind of this racial... Awakening. I don't know if that's the right word to <laughs> that use. That is the but perfect say, word to use. Around some of these, <laughs> around, around some white voters, and these are folks who I would argue are white liberals, but they become even more pronounced. Yes. In terms of their like feelings around race, in a way that I did not hear them bring it up of their own accord. Yeah. In previous cycles. Yeah. You know. So then, I mean, we're talking about, you know, how race is front and center, but we can't talk about how race is front and center for Democrats right now without talking about how in some moments uh, Biden has gaffed on race. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he was criticized when he told our colleague Lulu Garcia Navarro that the Latino community is a very diverse community, but the black community, not so much. (laughs) And like, in spite of the party being race forward, does Joe Biden actually have the language to meet the moment? And has he shown himself to be someone who can speak that language? That, that was a really interesting example, Sam, because it was, I think he said the words like, unlike the African-American community with, you know, da, da, da. and it was sort of like, why did he feel necessary to mention that phrase, right, of comparison, implying that black voters are kind of uniformly Democrat. And I'm sure you remember he got into some hot water earlier on when he gave an interview on The Breakfast Club saying that... I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. You ain't black if you're not supporting him, essentially. (laughs) And and what I will say is, is, look, I mean, there are a whole bunch of younger, progressive voters of color who have concerns about Joe Biden that are similar to the concerns that, you know, we probably, you probably remember hearing about Hillary Clinton in 2016. There was a young woman I met recently out in uh, Duval County, Jacksonville, Florida, Monique Sampson. And she is a part of this, like, young group of 20, 30-year-olds, all people of color, who've been organizing protests um, for, I think, the past couple of years, she said, but these protests have really, really picked up in the last couple of months with the death of George Floyd. And she was a big fan of Bernie Sanders. That's who she liked. She just felt like she ideologically aligned much more with him. But then she said, you know, the events of the summer really kind of made her reassess her own politics and just reassess what she thinks she ought to be doing ahead of November. Before this, before COVID, before George Floyd, I thought that Joe Biden and Trump were different wings on the same bird. And now I'm not- Explain that. 
in the sense of like Joe Biden's also a warmonger. Trump is a warmonger. Joe Biden also had under the Obama administration also had really terrible policies. Um, I'm not thrilled to be voting for Joe Biden. I'm not thrilled about it at all. In fact, I feel like I'm settling. But his actions aren't criminal in the sense of he wouldn't view 150,000 deaths as progress. I mean, hearing that, it kind of confirms for me that uh, some of the biggest things that have helped Joe Biden's campaign have not been Joe Biden. They have been Trump gaffes (laughs) and they have been this pandemic. Um, Is Joe Biden just a candidate who has been... Gosh, I hate to say lucky with the, you know, with the negative stuff happening right now in the country. But have those things helped him more than he could have ever helped himself? Um, so, you know, Sam, I had some conversations recently with the Biden campaign, and I was struck by the candor of one particular statement. Um, you know, someone told me that they felt like their best weapon at times against President Trump was Trump himself. Wow. And hearing that, like the admission of that, I thought was so fascinating, you know. And and so we were talking about this more in the context of the president does all these briefings, et cetera. And they haven't always thought it's advantageous for them to like try to counter program, for example, right? Everything he says, uh, because sometimes what he says himself is harmful to his campaign, to, you know, what President Trump says. And so it's the way that President Trump has handled the pandemic, that has yeah. really galvanized a lot of folks within the Democratic Party. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to this one person within the progressive movement the other day, and he told me that he feels like progressives have realized, like, this is the most important election of their lifetime. And you've got, you know, progressive organizations, one per- organization that told me they didn't endorse at all in 2016, they are now planning to invest $7 million to help support Joe Biden this November. I mean, it's just a remarkable shift. Yeah. Last question for you. Um, for the political nerds out there who want to know what tea leaves to try to read between now and November, what should folks that really want to track all this and how it plays out, what should they be looking at? What should they be looking at? Wow. Besides the polls, because I'm so tired of polls. <laughs> <laughs> Besides listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Hey, there you um, go. Let me see. I like that. As, as you being Sam, the alumni of our show, yeah. I think you would agree. <laughs> I do. I do wholeheartedly um, agree. Yeah. But so I will say to you, Sam, as much as you're like, you know, the polls, you're sick of polls. I mm-hmm. hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be very tiresome, especially mm-hmm. when people are looking collectively at polls and thinking, oh, well, these polls told us X, Y, or Z in a previous cycle, and maybe they weren't always right. I will say that I think, to me, what's been really interesting is to look at specific state polls, because I think that there was a lot of focus in 2016 on what national polls found. And we don't vote in a national poll, per se, right? In the election, we have an electoral college. And so the the need to focus on what's going on in a specific state is really important. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, friend. Um you have a very challenging and interesting and hard job right now covering a reluctant yet angry coalition from home and via Zoom. That's difficult, but you're doing a good job and I enjoy hearing your report. And I look forward to following you following this for the next few months. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. All right. Thanks again to my friend and colleague, NPR political correspondent Asma Khalid. Also, thanks to McKay Coppins of The Atlantic. All right, listeners, hope you enjoyed this little politics check-in this episode. Between now and November, we'll uh, do more of this, okay? Stay tuned. This episode was produced by Anjali Sastry and Andrea Gutierrez. Our fearless editor is Rodana Hopeman. We are back in your feeds with more news on Friday, dear listeners. Stay tuned. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.
before we end the show, a very special shout out to a very special member of the team whose birthday is this week. Happy birthday, Sam. And wishing you plenty of trashy TV, dog cuddles, good eats, good times. Here with my dog, Chewy. And we just wanted to say happy birthday. Right, Chewy? Hey, Maddie, do you want to say happy birthday to Sam? (laughs) He's just scratching behind his ear. Also, he can't talk. Thanks for being a great host and a great friend. Happy birthday, Sam! Okay, that was very loud.